Well, it is good to have you here this morning, and we are, uh, we're going to start a series today that is going to take us uh, through right up to Labor Day, so it's kind of a summer series, and I think the weather is going to work for us here, and uh, we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed. So I'll have to tell you, it was probably about a year ago I began to think about this and study this and think about the idea of teaching on the Apostles' Creed, but there was just something for me that was like, I'm not sure that that's legal or that you can do that in a church. And, and so I would begin to kind of ask people, what I found was really interesting. Um, so they say that more than half of churches in America on any given weekend use the Apostles' Creed in their worship. And as I would talk with people about, you know, what do you think about the Apostles' Creed? I would get, like, some people would say, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, like, I have that background. If you come from a, a Reformed church, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, even a historic Baptist, not modern, but historic Baptist background, then the creed is probably familiar with you. In fact, I'd ask, how many of you come from a background where at some point you attended a church that used the creed in worship? Anybody? Yeah, see, so that's pretty, more than half of us typically have. On the other hand, I got a different reaction from people who have, say, only attended modern Baptist churches or evangelical churches where they would kind of raise an eyebrow and they would look at me and, you know, they would say, like, is that legal? And are we going to have to have, like, church discipline or something like that? Like, can we do this? And so, honestly, I wrestled with this and prayed about this for a long time. But in the end, I, I could not resist what this is and what I believe it can do for us. In fact, I think it is a perfect follow-up to the book of Acts, and I'll explain a little bit about why that is. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father God, I thank you so much for uh, the last year and a half that we had to spend in the book of Acts and see the, the birth of your church and, and the growth and the development of your church. And Father, I pray for us now as we kind of take the next leap and we think a little bit about church history and doctrine and theology, creeds, and, and what that means for us today. I pray that you will open our eyes to see uh, the good things, the, the truth, the spirituality and all this. I, I pray that you will open us up to your, to your truth, um, to what it is that you've done through things like creeds. And I pray that you will be our teacher and our instructor this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So this morning I want to just introduce uh, the series, the idea of creeds, why we would study them, what they are. And in your notes, uh, which are a little bit longer this morning than usual, I know, uh, I want to begin by talking about what I call a crucial credo, just giving you some information about the Apostles' Creed, because I know for some of us, it's like, what in the world is that? So we're going to talk about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, what is it? So it is a, a written summary of early core beliefs of the Christian church. Uh, in fact, when we say early, uh, we believe that this creed predates 200 AD. Uh, in fact, some people put it somewhere around 180 AD when the first forms of this creed began, which makes the Apostles' Creed the oldest, and some would say the simplest, or we might say the, the briefest of creeds. There are many creeds out there, but this is the oldest one uh, that we will find in the Christian church. In fact, it is the only one recognized by every Christian tradition. 
Right? That tells you something right there in today's world. This is it. This is the only one in which all Christian traditions agree. So now there's a legend about how uh, the Apostles' Creed was written. The legend goes that all the apostles were together one day and they were getting ready to go out on mission. And Peter, in true fashion, stood up and he was the first one and he said, hey, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then we're told that when he was done, Andrew stood up and said, yes, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And so it went, and all 12 apostles gave a line of the Apostles' Creed, and, and they were like, oh, that's really cool. It's a neat story. It's just not true. Um, we actually don't know who wrote it, but we know why they wrote it, and we know how it was used. The Apostles' Creed was written originally in Latin, and the first words we would say are credo in deum, or literally, I believe, credo, I believe in God, deum. And we, in fact, we get the word creed from that first word, from the word credo or credo, depending on how you want to say it. And this is the creed that we have. So the Apostles' Creed um, is something that I would love for us to memorize um, over the course of the next 14 weeks. Now, I, this could be a little challenging. You know, we have um, cards in the back and the table in the middle for memorizing, some in paragraph form, some in a long form. And I'm going to encourage you to memorize it, and I'll tell you why uh, in a little bit. That being said, if you have memorized the creed in the past, you may have the same problem that I had. So I... I um, I accidentally memorized the creed years ago. And I say accidentally because it was in a song. But, but, but looking back, um, I'll tell you this, that the writer of the song took a lot of liberties. And so I memorized the, the creed in a way that's a little bit different. And I find it harder, I think, sometimes to relearn something slightly different than just to start from scratch. And so this is going to be a little bit of that. In fact, I used 10 sources to put the series together, and no one of those 10 agreed on all of the words. So there's only about 111 words in the creed. And for some of them, the only difference was hence or thence or whence or, you know, something like that. Nothing major, nothing that changes it, but just a word here or there. But in your notes is the version that we're going to be using in this series. And it's not crucial that you memorize it word for word, but the ideas that they represent. And so here's how it goes. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's broken up into three stanzas. I believe in God the Father, and then I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was uh, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. That's a controversial one that we'll talk about. Third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Catholic Church. That's not the, the, the Roman Catholic Church. It's the universal church. We'll talk about that. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen or amen, depending on where you were raised. And this is, uh, this is the creed. Now, the creed basically takes a million words of the Bible and kind of distills it down into 111 words. The creed was not meant to be comprehensive. It doesn't cover every topic. The creed was not meant to be a defense of the faith. It is a short 
or brief summary of what all Christians believe. Now, that's a really key statement. It is a brief uh, statement of what all Christians believe. Albert Moeller put it this way, and this is significant. He said, all Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. Now, that's a pretty key statement because actually there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians today who, in fact, believe less. So we'll be talking about that. I'm not going to be preaching the creed. I'm going to be preaching the Bible and using the creed as an outline or a syllabus, as you will, uh, to teach doctrine, to teach theology. Creeds are meant to drive us to the Bible. In fact, one person put it this way, that the Bible is God's word to man, and creeds are man's word to God. And I think that's a great way to put it. Now, in the early church, the creed had a very specific function. It was used for people who wanted to be baptized. And that's why the creed, we're told, was developed in the first place. It had two purposes for people who wanted to be baptized. The first is this. It was, it was educational. So now in the book of Acts, you may have noticed there was this, uh, this pattern that we saw. Uh, the gospel would be preached and people would confess Christ as Lord, and they would often be baptized immediately. And so a lot of times in the, in the church today, you'll hear people say like, we want to practice baptism the way they did in the early church, where somebody just says Jesus is Lord, and immediately they're baptized. But that's actually not the full picture of the way that it worked. When we're studying through the book of Acts, when we see people who came to Christ, what we were seeing basically was people who were coming out of, a, uh, out of Judaism, or people who were God-fearers. They were Gentiles, but they were part of, of the Jewish culture, and they worshiped God, and they knew the Old Testament. And so basically what you had in the book of Acts was people who had an understanding of the Old Testament, had a basic understanding of, of biblical doctrine, and, but the one thing they didn't know was they didn't know who the Messiah was. That was the key piece. And so when a Jew, when a God-fearer would become a believer, when they would confess Christ, basically it would, it would solve that one piece of the puzzle, and everything would start to connect together for them. And so these people would often just be baptized immediately. But we know that in the early church, it was not done the same way with Gentiles. So you would often have Gentiles who come from this background where they had no biblical knowledge. In fact, I can identify this because when I became a, a Christian in high school, I had never read the Bible. I had never been to church. I had no theology, no doctrine. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. People who were biblically ignorant and they needed Bible instruction. They needed to understand what it meant when they made a statement like Jesus is Lord. So the creed was created for these people. It was, it was a syllabus for biblical instruction. And they would memorize the creed, uh, and then they would receive instruction on it line by line, and then would come the day of baptism. And we're told some people might take a month to prepare, some people might take a year to prepare for this, and then the day of baptism would come, and they would confess the creed in front of the congregation, and they would be baptized. And this would give them a basic understanding of Scripture, and um, even illiterate believers would be able to remember the basics of the gospel. So it was educational. It was also what we might call sacramental. Um, it was recited by new believers at their baptism. And as they recited it, they would be identifying themselves as followers of Christ, um, as citizens of a different kingdom than the physical one in which they lived. Uh, because of this, they could face persecution. Um, they could uh, be ostracized from uh, their culture, alienated. They could even be put to death for this. 
for reciting the Apostles' Creed. And so we're going to try to memorize this over the next 14 weeks. And I thought it'd be good if we could just start together today. So we're going to have it on the screen. You've got it in your notes. And we're going to just say it together. Are you ready? I'm going to make it easy on you because we're going to do it in English. All right, here, here we go. All right, here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So you got it down, right? You're all ready to go. You're like, oh, is there going to be a test? A verbal test, yes. So here's what you need to understand. When the early church would recite this at a baptism or in a worship service, it's been said that it was both their greatest act of rebellion and their greatest act of allegiance to Christ. They were rejecting what their culture was, was telling them. What their culture was telling them was, Caesar is Lord. What their culture was telling them was, Rome is the kingdom that you want to belong to. They were saying, when they, when they said the Apostles' Creed, we don't believe what our culture is saying. Today, the, the same thing is true. When we say the Apostles' Creed as we just said it, we're saying the same thing. We're saying that we are rejecting what culture is telling us. Today, it wouldn't be really that Caesar's Lord, but we would be saying that we are, we are re, uh, rejecting the narrative of, say, materialism. The idea that each one of us are just molecules and, and chemicals and, and gray matter, that we don't have a spirit, that we don't have a soul, that when this life is over, it's all over. We reject that when we say the Apostles' Creed. We reject the idea that people are basically good. Our culture says that, but we reject that. Uh, we reject what our culture says, that there are many ways to God, that, that each person has their own truth, and whatever's right for them is right for them, and you can't tell them what's right or what's wrong. What we say is that we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, and that he came into this world to save sinners. That's what we say when we say the creed. That we are saved not by good works or by human effort, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so many parts of this creed that we just read are offensive today. Are, it's offensive in our culture to say that God is the creator of all things and therefore owns all things, has a right over all things. That is an offensive statement in our culture today. To say that Jesus was God incarnate, it's considered offensive to say, to, to say that he was born of a virgin. It's considered ridiculous today to, to say that we are sinners who needed to be saved uh, by a savior, uh, that, that he will return to judge everyone. People find that offensive. They say, no one's going to judge me. 
And yet when we say the creed, we say that Jesus is going to return and he will judge all. Reciting the creed is still a very radical thing. I mean, we can recite it in here. It's safe to recite the creed in here. Let me ask you, would you go home today and recite the creed to your family around the dining room table? Many of you probably would. How about with your roommates? How about at work? To, well, probably not tomorrow, but how about Tuesday for those of you who work? Would you go to work on Tuesday and at some point just find an opportunity to recite the creed out, out loud in the lunchroom or, or maybe at school during a class or maybe with your friends? You see, it's still a very, very radical thing for us to say. The creed. But why do, we, why do we need creeds? And this is something that comes up a lot in the church today. Why would we need something like the Apostles' Creed and why in the world would we spend 14 weeks talking about it? Well, I want to give you a, a couple of reasons, but we're told that the earliest Christian creed is probably just three words. The very first Christian creed is probably three words. Jesus is Lord. And in fact, we find that all over the New Testament, this, this creed. In Romans 10, 9, it tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's, Paul says, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord, there it is again, except in the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. In Philippians 2, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue confess, and there it is again, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So scholars believe that the very first creed in the early church were these three words, Jesus is Lord. Now, it may not sound like much of a creed, but actually there's a lot packed in there, right? Jesus, and then Jesus is, and then Jesus is Lord. And so this was the, the first creed that we see in the church. But these are not magic words. These are not like, you know, if I could just say these words and I'm saved and God has to let me into heaven and, you know, I get to be a Christian whether I mean it or not. In Romans 10, it, it kind of fills this out for us a little bit. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it goes on and says this, for with the heart... With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So two important concepts we find here in this passage. One is we confess with our mouth. I would put it this way. We confess with our mouth what is in our heart. So we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's, it's kind of a, a pledge. Some people have said the creed is kind of a pledge. And we're all familiar with pledges. When I was a kid, right, every day in school we said the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Do they still do that? You know, all right, it's all right. I pledge allegiance, right, you know, to the flag of the United States of America. We know this, and it's, it's a pledge that we make. It's kind of a confession. When, when the early church said Jesus is Lord, it was a, it was a confession with the mouth. It, it was actually saying a few things, that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the Lord, that he is God, that he is sovereign, that he is overall. We'll fill that out in the next couple of weeks that he is uh, the second part of the Trinity, that he was God in the flesh, all that is in there. But it's not just that Jesus is Lord, it also meant Jesus is my Lord. So it's a confession that I believe in him. Uh, but again, these are not magic words that save you. It's not like, well, all I have to do is say those words and I'm saved. Because it goes on and it tells us this, we believe 
not with our mouth, we believe with our heart. And now it's important to understand this. We'll fill this idea out next week. It doesn't say to know that Jesus is Lord. It says to believe that Jesus is Lord. And to know something and to believe something are, are two different things. Believing, we know, leads to change. It leads to action. That's what the book of James tells us. Knowing something may or may not lead to faith. It may or may not lead to action, right? So all of us know things, right? We, we all know things we should do that we don't do. Right? So maybe some of you know you should floss every night, but maybe you don't floss every night. Maybe you know you should eat better than you do, but you don't. Maybe you know, right? You know you've read the reports, you should get exercise every day, but maybe you don't do that. Maybe you know you shouldn't gossip, but you kind of do every now and then. And maybe you know you should be generous, but you're not. Knowing something doesn't always lead to action, does it? But believing always does. Again, we'll fill this out next week, but, but believing in Jesus will always bring about change. It will bring about change in our heart. It will bring about change in our thinking. That's what repentance means. It will bring about change in our standing before God. In fact, he says in this passage that faith in Christ leads to justification. That's a, a word that means we have a right standing in God. When we believe, another word is trust. When we trust in Christ and what he's done for us, it says we go from not being right with God to being right with God. But the key here is this. What we speak with our mouth proceeds from the heart. And it is believing in the heart that makes us right with God. So we believe that the first creed was just three simple words. Jesus is Lord. But over time, the early church needed to fill that out a little bit more. Like, what does that mean to believe that Jesus is Lord? And so the church began to develop what we might call doctrines. Uh, one writer puts it this way, doctrine is simply what the church believes, teaches, and confesses on the basis of the Bible. And we could say that for individuals, that, that doctrine is simply biblical truth that is systematic, well-defined, and defended. So when we talk about systematic theology, for instance, it's the idea that, well, let's, let's uh, figure out um, a doctrine of salvation. How do you get a doctrine of salvation? Well, you go to the Bible and you start pulling out verses all over the Bible that talk about salvation. You put them all together, you kind of work it through, and you end up with a doctrine of salvation. It's systematized. We pull it out from all over the Bible. Uh, we do that with the doctrine of God. So what is God the Father like? Well, we can look all over Scripture and pull out passages and put those together. Or what's the doctrine of sin? There's a doctrine of sin. We, again, we can go all over the Bible and bring verses together and then we can begin to, to define uh, what it is. What is sin? What is salvation? What, is, what does it mean that God is Father? Now we tell you this all the time, but every believer has doctrine and every church has doctrine. The question is, is it biblical doctrine? Is it, is it right doctrine? I hear from people today all the time things like, I don't need doctrine. I don't need a creed. I just need, you know, Jesus and me. That's all I need. I, I want an authentic faith. I want, a, I want a genuine faith. Don't give me any old creeds or any old songs. I just, just, just me and my buddy Jesus. I don't need a creed. A guy named Steve Turner wrote uh, something years ago. Maybe you've heard this. It's called The Creed of Creedlessness. And I like this. Uh, again, you maybe have heard this before. But he writes this. He says, We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. 
We believe everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. This evidence must be investigated and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Well, you get it. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. We believe there's no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. And we believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. It sounds so enlightened. It sounds so modern. It sounds so ridiculous, right? In Matthew 28, in fact, Jesus says this to disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We talk, you know, we need to go out and share the gospel and make disciples. What does that mean? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And notice this, and teaching them, teaching them, teaching them what? Teaching them to observe Jesus says, everything that I have commanded you, everything that I have taught you. And so Jesus says, you're going to need to go back and you're going to look at your Bible and you're going to need to teach this. A creedless, doctrineless Christianity conflicts with what Christ commanded us to do, to teach all that he has commanded us. Of course, the problem today is that pragmatism rules the day in the church. Here's what I mean. We don't really hunger and thirst for righteousness or for spiritual growth. We don't tend to wrestle with difficult spiritual concepts. Most people aren't a fan of coming to church and hearing a sermon on something that's hard and difficult and hurts the brain and, and then the pastor says, you know, we'll just, we'll just pick it up next week. Like we don't, we want everything to be wrapped up in 30 minutes or 45 minutes or uh, depending where you are, right? We don't want to memorize scripture we don't want to memorize creeds. We're not really interested in growing in biblical knowledge and doctrine. We're pragmatists, right? Give me a sermon on how to fix my marriage. It's taken me 20 years to ruin it. I just need a sermon on how to fix it. You have 30 minutes, go, right? I need a sermon on how to fix my kids. Have you met my kids? I need a sermon on, I need a sermon on how to fix my finances. I'm, I'm, I'm very stressed I'm very anxious, Pastor. Can you just give me a couple Bible verses and, and help me mellow out? I need, a, I need a series. I need a series on how to be happy. That's what I need. We're very, we're very pragmatists. I, I heard a sermon recently by Matt Chandler, and he said this, and I, I was like, oh, man, I've done this. My wife and I have done this. Maybe you've done this. He said this. He said, what do we ask our kids when we pick them up after church or youth group and they get in the car? What do we tend to say? We tend to say, like, did you have fun, right? Was it fun today? Did you guys play some fun games? Was the, was the, were there any good stories? Or, you know, we go to church and afterwards it's like, uh, did you have fun in church? Did the pastor make you laugh? Did he make you cry? Did he solve some problem? But of course, the truth is this. Church isn't meant to be fun. You're probably thinking, yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> That's not why we're here. We're here to glorify God and we're here to be sanctified. I mean, that's the bottom line. We're here to glorify God and we are here to be changed by the word of God. Sometimes it's fun, but a lot of times it's not. We're here for spiritual formation. 
We need to develop biblical knowledge and, and doctrine. Maybe a good word to use is sanctify. We need to be sanctified, to be made like Christ. Now, it'll be interesting along the way if your heart is open and in the right place, but if it's not, yeah, it's probably not going to be. We need creeds even today. So lastly, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about a few benefits of why we would do this. Why would we spend 14 weeks studying the Apostles' Creed and, and, and digging into Scripture that's underneath all these ideas? So I've given you a few. Actually, there's many. But in your notes, I've noted a few that I hope will kind of get you interested in coming back in the weeks to come. The first is this. Creeds define truth and they correct error. They define truth and they correct error. So each stanza, there's really three stanzas in the creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And what the creed gives us is truth to believe. It defines what is true for us. Is that important today? Do we need it today like they needed it almost 2,000 years ago? <sighs> Well, I laugh when I say that, but I'd say probably yes. So Ligonier and Lifeway Ministries did a massive study in the U.S. in 2018, and they followed it up in 2020. And here's some of what they found. Uh, they talked with Americans, tens of thousands of Americans, and here's just a few statistics. So 69% of Americans disagree that the smallest sin deserves divine judgment. In other words, what almost 70% of Americans said is, yeah, you know, there's some sins that deserve judgment. And most Americans would say, and I reserve the right to tell you what that is, but there's a lot of sin that just doesn't deserve judgment. Okay, so let me just tell you that that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. 58% of Americans say that worshiping alone or with your family is a valid replacement for attending church. Again, that is not biblical. 59% uh, of Americans say that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. That is heresy. We'll, we'll talk about that, all right, in the weeks to come. 60% of Americans agree with the statement, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. 60% of Americans believe that. Here's the uh, unbelievable thing. 32% of evangelicals agree with that as well. That religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. So then they interviewed Americans who self-identify as evangelicals. And here's a few things that they found. 30% of evangelicals deny the deity of Christ. They deny that he was God. They say, oh, he's a good teacher, but he wasn't God. 30%. 52% of evangelicals said that most people are basically good. It's like they haven't met people. 51% uh, say that God accepts the worship of all religions. 51% of evangelicals say that God accepts the worship of all religions. Again, God would, you know, God would basically say, eh, right? That, no, that is heresy. Nearly all evangelicals support the Trinitarian doctrine, right? the doctrine of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And yet, get this, I could not, I, I went back and looked at the study again and again to make sure I had this right. 78% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. 
78% of evangelicals say that Jesus was created, that he was not eternal. So let me just put this in context. This view was espoused by an ancient heretic named Arius. Arius was condemned at the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople as being a heretic, that this was heresy to say that Jesus was a created being. And yet 78% of American evangelicals agree with Arius today. Do we need to be taught doctrine? Do we need the creeds? Now, an interesting thing is that millennials scored higher than all other uh, demographic groups in several areas. 62% of millennials affirm that salvation is found in Christ alone. 64% affirm that Jesus will return to judge the world. And just about the time you get excited about millennials, it says 53% agree that the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And so the creeds define truth and correct error, which is something we need. Here's the second thing creeds do. They provide summaries of the Christian faith. So we've already talked a little bit about that, but creeds do not seek to replace scripture. They drive us to scripture. Uh, they summarize biblical teaching into succinct statements that are memorable that you can take with you in your head everywhere that you go and think about them. So the Apostles' Creed doesn't address every biblical topic. For instance, it doesn't say, I believe that the Holy Scriptures are inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit and are inerrant in their original writings. It doesn't say that. It's unnecessary because biblical authority is assumed in the Apostles' Creed. But it organizes biblical topics in a, in a helpful way. I don't know if you know this, there's all sorts of creeds that are all around us. In fact, I was thinking, at Gateway, we have a couple of, of things that would qualify as creeds. Um, one of them is uh, when we talk about the purpose of the church. Right? So we say, what's the purpose of the church? And basically, it's a creed. We say, um, it's a place where we want people to know and grow and show. That, in fact, if, as you were coming in today, you may have seen signs over the door that said no, grow, and show. So that's a little creed. It's a succinct statement so that everyone in our church knows why, what are we doing here? We want everyone to know Christ personally and know him progressively. That's actually two things, but we cheat and call it one. Uh, we want everyone to grow together as a spiritual family, and we want to demonstrate God's love to the people around us using our uh, spiritual gifts and our abilities and, and our resources. No, grow, and show is a kind of creed. Um, there's another kind of creed that I use when I teach a lot, and you may have heard this, where I'll say, I'll, I'll rattle off like this, I'll say, Jesus came, remember that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus saves. And that's just a little creed that I have, so whenever I'm thinking about Jesus and talking with people about Jesus, I can always remember some of the major things we need to talk about. Uh, Jesus came. So I, I don't say Jesus was, was born or began to exist. I say he came. He existed for eternity past and that he came and dwelt among us. Uh, he lived. He lived a righteous life. Um, he died. It says that he, had, he went to the cross. He died a shameful, cruel death where uh, he, his body was broken. His blood was shed for the remission of our sin. He died. We'll talk about that. Uh, he was, his body actually died. Uh, he rose on the third day. He ascended to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God now, where he has a ministry, by the way. We'll talk about that. And he saves. He saves all who place their faith in him. Again, that's, that's a little bit of a creed to just kind of remember one little area of doctrine. And that's what the Apostles' Creed does. It provides summary of the Christian faith. Here's the third thing. Uh, the creed encourages what we might call symmetry. Let me explain what I mean. When you make the statement, Jesus is my Lord, 
and my Savior, right? And we, we all say that at times, like, Jesus is my Lord. That's a great thing. We should say that. Uh, we should believe that, that God sees you as an individual, that God saved you as an individual. But the creed brings symmetry because you can't just say Jesus is my Lord. The creed also tells us we need to say that we belong to the Holy Catholic Church or the Universal Church and we belong to the communion of saints. So it brings symmetry, right? We remember that it's not just me and Jesus. It's, it's us and Jesus. I'm born into a spiritual family. Maybe you're really into the earthly ministry of Jesus. You know about all the miracles and, and, and the Sermon on the Mount and, you know, that he can make a really good lunch for people and all that stuff. You're really into that. But maybe you don't know much about the current work of Jesus. What's he doing right now? The creed makes us think about that. Maybe you're really into the Son, but you're not really, you don't know much about the, the Spirit. Again, the creed wants to bring symmetry to help us think about all of these, all of these things. The Apostles' Creed can strengthen our faith by forcing us to think about doctrines that we might otherwise ignore. Number four, creeds help us live biblically. We'll talk a lot about application, but and think about it. If you believe that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, that's going to have an impact on the way, for instance, that you uh, deal with your own sinful habits. It will also probably have something to do with how you uh, interact with people around you who haven't placed their faith in Christ. And thinking about the fact that he will come and, and, and judge them. When we talk about the forgiveness of sins, it should have a, a, a practical impact on the way that, what do you do with your sin? When you sin, do you, do you run towards God? Do you run away from God? Or how about when you think about the fact that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead? How do, how do you deal with issues of justice in this life? Is it, is it possible that some people will sin against you and you're just gonna, you're gonna trust God to make that right someday, right? The creed encourages us to remember that Jesus is coming back and, and he will make all things right. And so we can trust him with that. It, it brings symmetry, it helps us live biblically. And the fifth thing is creeds emphasize that to believe is to belong. So in the creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. We'll spend a week talking about that. And when we say that, we are reminded that Christianity is not just a Jesus and me, right? Or let me put it another way. It's not a narcissistic faith. It's not just about me. And for so many of us, you know, we, uh, I think it's a, it's a struggle. Some of us, we're very, uh, you know, we're very quiet, we're very introverted, I'll just be honest, sometimes we're just selfish. We're just selfish with our time. We're just selfish with, uh, you know, with, our, with our resources and with our talents. We, we really don't want to be bothered by other people. And some people feel like this right here is a bother. Coming here this morning was a bother. Being here, being around other Christians, having Christians come into your home and eat your food and, and, and take up your time and, and, and whine about what's wrong in their life and right, all that kind of stuff. We see that as a bother. And yet the creed reminds us that actually it is not you and Jesus. It is us and Jesus. Think about this. The creed reminds us of all the believers through the centuries that have recited the Apostles' Creed when they were being baptized. All the people around the world today who recited the Apostles' Creed as we did in worship services all over the world. As one writer put it, today, all over the world, people are reciting the same creed that we recited, but just in a different language. 
We have Swedish Lutherans, Korean Presbyterians, African Pentecostals, Guatemalan Catholics, Chinese house churches, Egyptian cops, all are affirming, even if it's in different languages, this is what we believe. This is not just what I believe. This is what we believe. And the Apostles' Creed reminds us that we are part of something so much bigger than us. Our spiritual family extends beyond these walls. It extends beyond uh, Baptists. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, other people are saying uh, beyond, uh, you know, political parties and, and countries and, and borders. It extends beyond race and background and, and language. You know, COVID continues to remind us that we are prone as human beings. We are prone to fight and divide and disagree. We are prone to see how we are different. But the Apostles' Creed reminds us of what unifies us. Uh, even across denominational lines, even across traditions. I was thinking this week how much we need that. How much do we need that right now in the church? To focus on what unites us. To focus on, on what it is that we believe. And a sixth and final thing. Creeds connect us to the faith of our fathers. I wanted to end with this for a very particular reason. I find in the church today there are some people who just object to everything old. It makes me feel really nervous. Uh, they, they object to old doctrines. They object to old spiritual writings. I don't read books that were written 50 years ago by old dead guys, right? People are like, I don't need that. They feel like I don't need old songs. I don't need old prayers. I, you know, uh, a while back I bought a prayer book. I'd never had a prayer book before. Uh, just the idea of, you know, reading someone else's prayers felt weird to me. I've discovered that there are a lot of people who pray way better than I do, you know. And I love the prayer book, but just this idea, I don't need anyone else's prayers or writings or sermons or creeds. Uh, Jaroslav Pelikan said this, and I, this has really stuck with me. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And when you can't tell the difference between the two, you just tend to throw it all out, right? There's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. Traditionalism is just kind of a dead, rote list of things that you do, but tradition, is, tradition can be powerful, it can be helpful, there's a, there's a trend. Uh, so I, I read a, a small book by a guy named Ben Myers, and I loved what he said here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read part of this, and don't, please don't be offended as I begin to read this. So just listen to what I have to say. So he's talking about couples and the recent trend to write your own, your own wedding vows. And when I say the recent trend, it, you know, like it's kind of been something people have done for the last, you know, 60 years or so. So that's pretty recent in history that people would write their own wedding vows. And, uh, and I read this to my wife and my wife's comment afterwards was, I wish we hadn't written our own vows. I'm like, yeah, I get it. So let me, just, let me just read this to you. I think he makes a good point. He says, in the past, one of the things that made a wedding special was the fact that you got to say exactly the same words that everyone else said. When a couple said their vows, they weren't just expressing their own feelings. They didn't use their own words. They used the same words their parents used, the same words their grandparents used, the same words their ancestors had spoken, and they made those words their own. But today... Today, we are very skeptical 
of old things. We are skeptical of tradition. We are skeptical of anything handed down to us. He says this, and I love this statement. He says, we assume the truest thing we could ever say would be something we made up ourselves. Man, that is so true in the church today. That is so true. I hear it all the time. I don't need creeds. I just want to be authentic. I don't need doctrine. It's just Jesus and me. We assume the truest thing we could ever say would be something we had made up ourselves. The paradox is this. What could be more conformist than expressing your feelings of love through your own specially crafted wedding vow? To confess the creed is to take up a radical countercultural stance. When we say the creed, we are not just expressing our own views, our own priorities. We are joining our voices to a great communal voice that calls out across the centuries from every tribe and from every tongue. We locate ourselves as part of that community that transcends time and transcends place. The first word of the creed is I. I believe. This morning we're just covering the word I. Next week we'll talk about believe. But here's, here's the question. Who is the I? When you read it and say I believe, who is that? It's the body of Christ. It's us. Unified together. One last quote. Meyer says this, the truest and most important things we can ever say are not individual words, but communal words. In the creed, I allow my own individual I to become part of the we of the body of Christ. And so we're going to spend the next, well, we're going to spend the summer talking about this, this idea, this, this creed, this, this we, I believe. Let's read it one more time together, and then I will close us in prayer. Ready? Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for the faith of our spiritual fathers. We thank you for the faith that has been handed down from generation to generation. And we thank you for things like, like creeds, Creeds that remind us of truth. Creeds that correct error. Creeds that help direct us in how we live our lives. Creeds that bring symmetry, our balance to our lives. 
Creeds that remind us that we are part of a family, of something so much bigger than us, not just those who are in this room, not just those of us who will be here at other services today, not even just those of us who, who speak the, the English language, but every believer all over the face of the earth today and those who have ever lived in the past who placed their faith in you. We are a family and we believe Father, my prayer is that over the next 14 weeks, you will drive the truth of Scripture deep into our hearts. And that we will not just memorize a creed, but Father, your word will become alive. Your word will become more understandable to, uh, to us than it ever has before. That we will be a people who believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us, folks. Have a great holiday weekend, and we'll see you next week.